Okay, pasa, mufasa, ni hao, bonjourno, bon dia, salam aleikum, and shalom, what's up, everybody? Happy Friday. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today, we are extremely honored to host Mason Marks. Mason is the Florida Bar Health Law Section Professor at the Florida State University College of Law. He is also the Senior Fellow and Project Lead of the Project on Psychedelics Law and Regulation, POPLAR, at the Petrie Flom Center for Health, Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. You might have heard of it. Say that 10 times fast on a head full of GMP-grade LSD in a legally sanctioned clinical trial for science and research. He's also the author of a weekly newsletter covering the ins and outs of psychedelic law and policy, and that's called Psychedelic Week. He does a fantastic job on that. Very excited to get down to our discourse shortly, but first, gotta give a huge shout out to the Mycopreneur sponsors, Real Mushrooms. Real Mushrooms has been in this business for decades and uses, you guessed it, actual mushrooms. They've got it all and top shelf quality, no less. I'm talking organic cordyceps extract, organic chaga extract, tremella, lion's mane, reishi, maitake. The list goes on and on, friend. They've got a whole product line targeted at your dog as well. So please consider taking a second right now to check out Real Mushrooms for yourself, realmushrooms.com. Also, huge shout out to Everyday Dose Mushroom Coffee. Everyday Dose is the gold standard in mushroom coffee, which is sweeping the nation by storm right now. Pretty much everyone I talk to has a friend who's recommended a mushroom coffee brand to them. And I frequently get messages from people asking about, what do you know about this brand? What do you know about that brand? And the fact of the matter is, I've stacked my chips in the Everyday Dose corner. So the best thing you can do here is to try it for yourself. Check out Everyday Dose. Dot com. And to round out the trifecta of power sponsors for Mycopreneur are my trusty friends at Microboost. Yes, M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. And I stay strapped with their products. Yes, right there, I've got the brain capsules. That's lion's mane cordyceps mix. And the immunity capsules, turkey tail, chaga, reishi. If you know, you know. If you don't, it's time to check out what these companies are offering. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm stoked that you're here. And since you're here, please go ahead and leave Mycopreneur Podcast a review. Alrighty then, let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up everybody? Welcome, Mason Marks, to the Mycopreneur Podcast. How are things in the Northeast United States today, Mason? Going well, Dennis. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. I just caught an interview that you did with my friend Joe Moore of Psychedelics Today, and I'd encourage everyone to check that out. It's up on the Psychedelics Today LinkedIn page. And the UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics put out a newsletter describing this year in psychedelics as a pivotal and tumultuous year. It was quite turbulent for a lot of people, especially in the public markets, especially in the psychedelic sector. Now, it feels like the whole industry is waiting with bated breath on impending FDA approval of MDMA-assisted therapy for MAPS. And I think that's a good place to start. What are some of the key considerations that you see with this process? And you've written about it extensively about regulatory approval and policy. And do you see this moment in time as being an extremely important focal point? And also, it doesn't guarantee that the FDA will approve this just because MAPS has submitted it. So what are some of your thoughts just generally to get the ball rolling on this impending FDA approval of MDMA-assisted therapy? That's a good place to start. And I haven't seen that list, that year in review out of Berkeley yet. So I'm excited to check that out after we chat. But I, I, I think I agree in general that 2023 is sort of a pivotal year for many different reasons. 
there probably were more psychedelic conferences than ever before. There was, of course, the big MAPS Psychedelic Science 2023 event in Denver. And, um, but, but at the same time that we're seeing so much attention, like a bigger and bigger spotlight focused on psychedelics, there's also a little bit of turbulence, as you're well aware. Some of the conferences after MAPS in June were, were kind of constricted or they're smaller in size. And I want to ask you about your experience at uh, Wonderland Miami, for example. So a little bit of um, uh, some negative publicity for psychedelics. There was, of course, the, the crazy story about the, the airline pilot that allegedly took psychedelics. I haven't seen any proof that he actually took mushrooms, but at least he said he did. And so just a lot of um, critical stories emerging. So still a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of investment in the space, obviously, but um, at the same time, you know, some, some hesitation by some people. But I do think it's a pivotal year, not only for the, um, the recent submission by MAPS of its new drug application for MDMA for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, but for all these other things that are going on just in the media and, and society at large. And uh, one thing related to Harvard, for example, kind of reflecting this excitement was a recent gift of $16 million from the Gracias Foundation to study the role of psychedelics in society and culture. So that's, that's unprecedented. And you can see that there's so much interest from many, many different segments of society in learning more about these substances, but specifically with respect to the MAPS um, new drug application, I do think that is a really historic event. People expected it to happen. So it's not like a surprise and um, it was expected to happen pretty soon, but I do think that it's not a foregone conclusion that the FDA will approve it or, or as many people assume that it will be approved sometime, you know, next year. It's it's quite possible, but we don't really know, especially because this is such an unusual request uh, that the that Maps is making of the FDA to consider this treatment that sort of bundles the psychological support or therapy or whatever you want to call it along with the drug, and this is something that the FDA is really not accustomed to doing. Another reason this is a pivotal year is that the FDA released its guidance for psychedelic researchers in June. And in that document, you can see the FDA's discomfort with the psychological support. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't say discomfort, but just the agency really went out of its way to ask drug sponsors, as the manufacturers are called, to justify their inclusion of that support. Why is it included? What do they expect it to add? And one has to wonder what, what kind of justification MAPS has included in its application. So I think there are a lot of unknowns, but it has been quite a year for psychedelics. Yeah, and just to dive into the aftermath of the Psychedelic Science Conference, that felt like a high watermark for a lot of reasons for the mainstreaming of psychedelics. Massive event tons of very recognizable public figures who are openly advocating for the adoption of psychedelic assisted therapy and campaigning for MAPS. And I got to MC one of the days. So that was a personal highlight of the year. It was great to be able to meet a lot of people. And uh, I'll never forget the opening ceremony with a whole auditorium full of people, perhaps eight to 10,000 people in there. And I was right 
front and center next to the stage and turned around and just saw this sea of heads and how far we've come, right? But then after the fact, I didn't see the momentum translate to other events. And I saw you reference this, that Horizons New York was canceled. I've been to that event before. So they reached out to me like the week of and were saying, hey, do you want to come and you want to cover this? And I go, I need more than a week's notice, guys. And then uh, I was out at Wonderland for the second year. And that was a wildly different event this year than it was last year or the year before, just in terms of size, in terms of venue, and in terms of the overall turnout of the types of people and companies that were there and noticeably absent were the marquee speakers. So I think that, and I say that in the sense that it, they didn't have the Mike Tysons like they had before, and they didn't have, you know, Rick Doblin and Paul Stamets and these really very public figures. So I think that overall that everybody's very excited about psychedelics, but for different reasons, A, and B, it's really hard to make population level decisions around psychedelics. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is it reminds me of when the internet first came out and you see the Electronic Frontier Foundation and John Perry Barlow trying to describe to Congress, to these geriatrics, how the internet works. It doesn't necessarily translate very well. And that might be a crude sort of off the cuff analogy, but it's what I'm kind of observing with the regulation of psychedelics, that it's quite difficult to regulate them because they're an extraordinarily disruptive, powerful, and pretty easy to share at the peer level substance. So just some top of mind considerations there. But Let's dive into moving forward. What are, the, what are the things that you're really excited about other than the $16 million grant that Harvard was gifted? What are you really excited about for 2024 in regards to psychedelics? One thing I'm really excited about is that I'll be teaching a course at Harvard Law School, co-teaching with my colleague, Glenn Cohen, who is the faculty director of the Petrie Flom Center, where our project on psychedelics law and regulation is based. Well, we're teaching the first psychedelic law course at Harvard. I taught it this semester during the fall of 2023, and it was an amazing experience to talk to law students about psychedelics. And I had, you know, it's incredible to me that almost every week of the semester, I was able to have an attorney who is working, if not full-time in the psychedelic space, you know, devoting a significant portion of their time to it. And so it was just really an amazing experience to bring those people to the students to answer their questions. And I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback from students that, you know, they'd never seen anything like it. They never thought about psychedelics in, in that, in, in the way they did before the course. And so it'll be fun to bring that to Harvard kind of as part of this growing interdisciplinary initiative there. <laughs> this is all about me, I guess. I have a book that I'll be turning in in 2024, and that's exciting. So wrapping that up uh, over the next few months. But in terms of the industry, I'm really excited to see what happens with the MDMA potential approval, specifically what kind of restrictions the FDA might impose on MDMA. I imagine there will be pretty significant restrictions regarding the locations where it can be offered. So what type of a medical facility can be certified to provide it? Potentially the medical professionals themselves might, might have to follow certain re restrictions. Pharmacies will likely have to be certified. We see similar restrictions in place for the 
prescribing of Spravato, the, the, the Janssen S-ketamine product, as well as other psychiatric drugs. That's through the REMS, the risk evaluation and, mitigate, and mitigation strategies, which will undoubtedly, I, I suspect, be implemented for MDMA. I, I want to ask you, as I think about other things I'm looking forward to, what, what do you think accounts for that sort of constriction of the conferences in the latter half of 2023? Do you think it's just some kind of fatigue? I'm sure people put their all into psychedelic science, but there must be, there must be other things going on. I, and, and I enjoyed your coverage of that conference because I was not there at, at Wonderland. And they merged the longevity uh, industry, that thread with the psychedelics, which seems to be an increasingly common pairing you know, the TREAT initiative in California was also kind of a pairing because it was headed up by someone who was very invested in the longevity industry. Sure. So I've got some familiarity with a number of those organizations you mentioned. And I think what accounts for the smaller turnout at the conferences or the canceling conferences and the general tumultuousness is that a lot of companies and platforms that got invested and excited about psychedelics when it really started to come above ground 2018, 2019, I think they're running out of runway. That's pretty self-evident, right? Is that they had runway set up, they took on capital or they were funding it themselves with the idea that we would be in a very different place in 2024 than we are. I think that it's been a glacially paced movement in a lot of ways because you have to deal with these state and federal regulatory agencies. And there's a lot of factors behind the scenes. And one of those, which I'd love to discuss, which was the premise of my panel at Wonderland and also the upcoming panel at South by Southwest, is about this largely unregulated gray market, legacy market, underground market. And part of my criticism of a lot of this emergent psychedelic renaissance, which is quite a loaded colonially informed word in a lot of ways or title is that there was a lot of marginalization and ignoring of this legacy market as being a black market, an illegal market, an illegitimate market. And I would point back to the fact that this market has been around since the dawn of time and has only been criminalized in the last five decades or so. So really, this is uh, a lot of communities around the world, which is another thing I often try to emphasize that are operating beyond the regulatory framework that's being suggested. And that a lot of this is made possible by peer-to-peer -peer economy in the sense, the same that file sharing kind of popped up. And all of a sudden the music industry and entertainment industry is trying to regulate the fact that there's pirate DVDs and, and, and streams all over the planet. And people are able to get this from their neighbor or able to get this from a trusted source. Again, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's the same idea of, in specific, mushrooms, which, as you know from the name Mycopreneur, that's predominantly the focus of what I do. I don't really comment so much on the ketamine or MDMA, although I have dipped into interviewing people in those spaces, but I focus on mushrooms for a lot of reasons. And I think that's one of the primary hurdles is that, for example, a recent Guardian article came out citing that mushroom use in Wales and England has skyrocketed this year while MDMA use has actually fallen. Now, this is happening despite the fact that there's a huge amount of PR, a huge amount of corporate interest pushing the legalization and the adoption of MDMA-assisted therapy. And I think that hits the nail on the head right, right there, that even with all of this PR and hype and regulatory scrutiny that 
the use of that substance has actually fallen while this unregulated mushroom industry has skyrocketed and it's all over the planet. Now, that's what we're seeing right now in these different state and uh, federal frameworks or proposed initiatives is how do you combat that? How do you corral that? It's very difficult. And I'm still evolving my own perspectives on this. But as we saw with Oregon, most people don't really want to or are not in a position to pay $3,500 for a single session of a legal psilocybin therapy session when they can get it in the parking lot for a fraction of that. A pound of psilocybin mushrooms is going for $175 to $200. Most people are not going to eat a pound in their lives. So those are some of the context around why I think we're starting to see a lot of growing pains and difficulty for the more corporate or regulatory frameworks for legal psychedelics when the peer economy is filling a lot of the need and a lot of the demand for this. And uh, I think that a lot of these more corporate interests are going to have to actually recognize that and respect and contend with it, or else they're going to be confused why so many people have... Uh, gotten their mushrooms from their friends and aren't paying for their exorbitantly priced frameworks and the therapy that accompany that. And even at the academic levels, there's still people debating whether or not you actually need the therapy as a component. So that's another thing. I think that there's a lot of trust that's put in these institutions and in academia and whatnot, but that even at the highest levels, a lot of the figureheads in these spaces are debating each other. So until they can, you know, sort of in-house figure out a lot of these issues, it's going to be very difficult to compete with the nebulous, unregulated legacy market that gives people what they want. And at the end of the day, I guess to wrap up this thought, our, our idea kind of as a spokesperson for this legacy space is that the consumer sets the demand and the price. And as long as there's consumers who want to pay you know, $10 or maybe nothing for mushrooms because they're gifted, it's going to be very hard to convince people or to infantilize the conversation to a point where they feel like they need to involve the insurance companies and, you know, this this uh, hierarchical sense of order. So that might be a little bit wonky, but I guess that's part of where I'm seeing the legacy market butt heads directly with this kind of legal FDA approved biotech sector for psychedelics. You've really opened up a can of worms there, Dennis. That's a, so, so many things to, to, that I want to touch on. You reminded me of some things I am looking forward to for next year. Maybe, maybe, maybe looking forward to is not the right way of putting it, but there are things that I'm watching very closely. And, and two of those are the rules that will come out in Colorado to control the regulated market there, the supervised adult use or medical use market that's emerging in Colorado. And also how that regulated program will interact with or potentially constrict this sort of gray unregulated market or the personal use side of Colorado's psychedelic law. And I think there's a lot of unknowns there. This natural medicine advisory board that meets in Colorado to recommend rules to the governing agencies there, I've been following their activities really closely. And there's a lot of confusion, disagreement, uh, potentially even emerging conflict over how the, the regulated and unregulated side should relate to one another. And so that's something that I'm kind of looking forward to, to, to seeing how that you know, shakes out. 
The other thing I, that you mentioned was the, the role of the therapy in, in psychedelic assisted therapy, which is a term that I avoid using personally because I think of it as a marketing term and somewhat misleading because there are uses for psychedelics outside of psychiatry, emerging uses in things like the treatment of pain and headache, for example. And I think that that term suggests sort of a psychoanalytic or a, a real psychotherapeutic approach where, where someone is being, you know, really prompted by the therapist to kind of a traditional psychotherapy intervention and typically is not what these things look like. And I think a lot of people took issue with the FDA characterizing those elements as psychological support. There was an article that came out recently in the Lancet, you know, probably the world's top medical journal, if not, you know, top two or three, arguing that psychedelic assisted therapy is always psychotherapy. You know, that's just what it is. But I prefer the term psychedelic medicine because it's just more, you know, general and welcoming of different perspectives and approaches. And I think in some cases more accurate of, you know, it more accurately reflects what's actually happening. But I think you're absolutely right. We don't really know what the role of those psychological elements is. I'm open to being persuaded that they're essential in some cases, if not most, you know, maybe, maybe it's essential. In some cases, they may play very little role. And in some, they may, they may even do more harm than good. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're loading people up with these expensive integration sessions, and that reminds me of your funny video on integration. And uh, I think just generally, I, I wanted to say to you that these issues are so complicated and the way the media often portrays them is so simplified and superficial. And I think you found a really unique way to express that complexity through humor, which is really effective. And it's also a nice relief, you know, from a lot of the debates and, you know, conflict in the, in the sector. So it's like a, I, I thank you for that. I very much appreciate that, Mason. And really that was a response to my audience. I kind of always had this comedic, satirical through line and just the way that I approach life. But I had never led with that or created content around it until I randomly kind of arbitrarily decided to do it one day about a year into the podcast. And it got an overwhelmingly positive response and reception. And it's sort of as a, as a creator or a journalist or whatever, you double down on what works, right? You're creating for an audience. And then I realized that that's my main contribution I want to make is that I'm not really an expert. You know, I don't have a PhD. I, I don't try to argue too often with scientists about certain things. But as far as the psychedelics role in culture, uh, there's a lot of historical precedent for that. There's a lot of great writers and creators and actors and so on and so forth who have kind of explored those boundaries. And we really do live in a, an absurd timeline right now, for better or worse. And I think we should pause to reflect upon and appreciate that absurdity because that's another element of the psychedelic experience that has endeared me to mushrooms and to psychedelics from a fairly young age is that they can be utterly baffling and bizarre. And I think if you develop a sense of humor about it and a sense of not trying to position yourself as the authority on everything, which is 
arguably an epidemic that we're experiencing right now as a society is the overnight authority, the rush to be fundamentally correct, uh, to outwit other people who might have a different perspective. I think a lot of that can be ameliorated with humor to the point that in the underground community, there's a lot of the same kind of tension that exists in the legal therapeutic biotech sector. I think that people are people, whether they're you know, in the home with their friends or they're out in work putting on their tie and being a public figure or whatever. Like you have a lot of the same kinds of challenges that people face. So in the underground community, I've been petitioned to potentially start a roast for the same reason why I think a roast would benefit the uh, more legal side of things is at the end of the day, we really don't know a lot of what we're dealing with. Like we have some educated guesses, we have some data, but a lot of the broader questions that psychedelics confront us with and personal experiences, we don't really have a comprehensive idea or understanding of, of where that comes from or where it's going. And so I like to try to use humor and satire as a tool to remind myself of that first and foremost, and to hopefully remind other people that just because we have these professional qualifications and we have the venture fund and the capital and this and that, we're still eating a handful of paper dry mushrooms that grew in cow shit. And all of a sudden we're breaking down and crying and want to call our mom, you know, like that's a pretty amazing experience. And I think there's a tendency for people to try to reduce that into a, a talking point that maybe strips it of some of the broader, richer context that surrounds it. So thank you very much. I, I appreciate yeah. you validating that well i'm going to stop you right there because the the mushrooms are not grown in manure because that is prohibited in the oregon psilocybin services program so just just an important public service message there that's actually something that they're considering in colorado right now what kinds of substrates to allow and so there was a great discussion last week about whether to prohibit manure as a as a growth medium and I pointed out that many people might not know that um, there was a ballot initiative passed last, last year in Colorado, the Natural Medicine Health Act. But then this year it was amended by the state legislature through uh, an amendment called SB 290 or SB 23290. And one of the interesting things that it did, I think it, created many problems and, and in many ways is more trouble than it's worth. But one potentially positive thing it did is it put right up at the top the importance of respecting indigenous practices. And um, so far, I haven't necessarily seen the regulators actually follow through on that. I mean, I, 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 I'm optimistic that they will, uh, but I pointed out that prohibiting manure as a growth medium could is sort of discriminating against traditional practices where people, you know, either um, would grow mushrooms in manure or they just harvest them from a field where they're, it's grown in manure. So it'll be interesting to see how much they actually take that mandate seriously. Um, but getting back to the, 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 the content you produce, it's like addressing very serious and complicated issues, you know, like that, like the question of what is the role of, of psychological support. What is integration? What exactly is that? People talk about it all the time. Or um, uh, the data collection issue, which I also want to talk about. There's sort of a trend now in the psychedelic space that every single thing has to be measured and quantified. You can't possibly have a psychedelic experience that is not recorded, even videotaped, 
And, um, you know, artificial intelligence doesn't analyze people's facial expressions and speech while they're, you know, in the midst of the experience. So, you know, you're, you're, you're addressing things that are really complicated and difficult to convey in a funny way, which I think is really helpful. Um, but just getting back to the gray, the gray market, um, reports out of Oregon are that people are looking at the regulated industry there, which can cost, you know, $3,000, $3,500 for a, for a significant dose of psilocybin. And they're saying, no, thank you. And, and, and I also don't want my data to be sent to the Oregon health authority, a state agency. Um, it's, it's almost as if, um, you were to go to a therapist and they sent your, your file, you know, to the, to, to state regulators. So there's a lot of hesitation, I think, in terms of the cost, the complexity, potential privacy concerns, people can just um, turn to their local communities. Some people who are knowledgeable go into the forest in Oregon and um, where, where these products are, are plentiful. So yeah, it's interesting that you are focusing on mushrooms because when you look at things like iboga, which is grown in Africa and it's, it's not, you can't just find it growing in the hill, the, the foothills of Colorado. And yet that is being um, really pushed forward in this regulatory program. Same with ayahuasca and um, uh, mescaline as well. But when you're looking at psilocybin, something that's so plentiful, so abundant, so inexpensive and, and relatively easy for people to produce on their own, they are going to ask themselves why, would I go through all the the trouble and expense to do it in this very regulated setting? A hundred percent. So I like to track all of what's happening. And I also want to say that I'm, I'm not anti-corporate, anti-synthetic psilocybin. I think there's a lot of value for a lot of points of access. But what I get kind of up in arms about is when all of the resources and all of the focus seem to be directed at creating these exclusive gate-kept, sort of comprehensive therapy packages that then require essentially people to have insurance or to be able to pay out of pocket. And in a lot of ways, I think that's putting the cart before the horse. I also recognize there's a lot of people who want to make money. And I think psychedelics were very much the trending topic and in some ways still are the trending topic. So you're going to have a lot of people who are opportunistically rushing in, trying to cash in on this. And I think there's plenty of people who would openly say, that's my focus. You know, their public facing statements might be about mental health and this and that, but like what moves the needle are the quarterly financial returns, you know, and to answer to investors and so on and so forth. And I think there, there was a rude awakening and will we'll continue to be for a lot of people. And my question is, when you have to escalate the exclusivity and you start getting into patents and you start getting into, you know, super PACs and trying to write policy and leg legislature in a way that makes it very exclusive and only these companies can do it and only these people can get it in this certain way, then again, the cart is way before the horse. You have something that is really potentially impactful for most people who consume it, that's ubiquitously available, why not focus on that? And to round that thought out, I went to school in San Francisco and pretty early on at the University of San Francisco got connected to a lot of, or at least a community of early Silicon Valley entrepreneurs 
And I found out that a lot of them were taking LSD, DMT, mushrooms in very non-clinical settings and that they were actually having profound impacts and measurable impacts in their life. And not just on the microdosing for productivity tip, more as fundamentally shifting their worldview and inspiring a lot of innovation. And I would say that a lot of the people who gave us this incredibly disruptive world-defining technology were psychonauts. And why wouldn't we focus more on trying to catalyze and galvanize innovation? Why put these things in a box where it's so overtly focused on the medicalization and treating a condition when you potentially have something that uh, could spur or inspire this incredibly transformative and disruptive innovation? And I feel like that's the case across the board, not just in these highly localized areas like Silicon Valley or LA, but like in Mumbai and in Uganda. And if people, and you know, perhaps without even having a psilocybin mushroom experience, just by being able to learn about mushrooms as a form of biotechnology, as a very durable, intelligent material that you can do a lot of things with, it would definitely, from my perspective, disrupt a lot of current industries. And I've gone so far as to speculate that the 17 sustainable development goals that the United Nations have rolled out for their 2030 carbon neutral agenda, essentially, a lot of those can be directly addressed with mushrooms. And the UN and various global governance organizations themselves are investing in this and are looking at this. So that's really the fundamental, the, the crux of mycopreneur is that I want to try to democratize and spread that knowledge. And that's what gets me excited, not this idea of like, patent exclusivity and you know a $6 billion industry. That is one small part of this broader shift into democratizing mycology and to letting people know that there are these experiences that are available to them that are actually an ancestral birthright, I would argue, and that uh, only in the last few generations or hundred or thousands of years or so has this become uh, largely taken or, or constricted from widespread availability. So. Why, why keep going narrow and narrower with the bottleneck when you could be reversing course and democratizing and, uh, you know, making it more available, the experience to people? So, yeah, if you haven't figured out yet, yet I'm big on rants. So hopefully there was at least a few uh, cogent points in there. Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I fully support FDA research and approval. I think, you know, I think the commercial development of psychedelics is very important. The scientific study and investigation is, is, um, is really important. And I'm, and I'm always happy to see that progressing, but I, I, I don't, what I don't like to see is that progressing at the expense of the other avenues, especially because I think that only causes more problems than it solves. So, you know, let's take, for example, the recent veto by Gavin Newsom of the of SB fifty eight, the statewide decrim bill that um, was actually passed by the state legislature, which is pretty amazing. I was pointing out um, to to Joe Moore that you know that's a historic event for a state legislature to pass a decrim bill that hasn't happened. That's typically been done by through ballot initiative. So that's really amazing. I had some problems with that bill. It, by the end, after it made its way through committees and, 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 and was approved, it kind of became more of a therapeutic regulated bill um, 
that maybe more than anything else, it, it would have decriminalized personal use, but group use and sharing would have had to have been governed by this regulatory framework that would have been created. Nevertheless, it's, it's, um, unfortunate that it was vetoed. And, and I think the, the opinion that Newsom expressed in his, in his veto letter was that, you know, it, it had this viewpoint that decriminalization was dangerous, you know, that, that you needed to have a therapeutic framework in place first and, um, you know, with protocols and guidelines and things like that. The, the, the critical problem with that is that when you criminalize things, when things go wrong, people don't want to, to seek medical attention. If there are bad actors in the underground space, they might not talk about them or report them to anyone. And so it really uh, allows bad things to happen. Whereas if you brought them out into the open, you know, there, there's a, a far greater chance that you can prevent bad things from happening, largely through education, because people just feel more comfortable openly educating each other and speaking about these things. I'm always very impressed and struck by this movement to form psychedelic societies across the country, which I think has been invigorated by local decriminalization efforts or deprioritization of uh, criminal enforcement. And, you know, we've seen this in so many different places Cal from California to Massachusetts and, and Maine now. And there are people forming these psychedelic societies and they're just educating each other on how to, how to responsibly uh, engage with these substances. And that can go a really long way. I think it's underestimated by a lot of legislators who are maybe new to the subject matter and they only hear from medical experts who are not public health experts. You know, unfortunately, public health is a very often isolated field from medical practice. You know, they're two very distinct things. Medical professionals like doctors, nurses, physici physicians, assistants, they don't, they don't, they're so, so engaged on a daily basis in the minutia of what they're doing to treat patients. They don't usually step back and think about the bigger public health picture, let alone get involved in policy. And so I think a lot of legislators tend to hear from either the researchers or the medical practitioners who maybe are not as knowledgeable or experienced in public health and things like harm reduction. And so the, the benefits, the public health benefits of decriminalization, not, not, not even considering the, the sort of justice, uh, social justice implications as well, uh, are lost oftentimes in these discussions. Yeah, you touched on a few points I want to unpack there. And first off, I want to mention that something that I've theorized, which makes a lot of sense to me, is the difference between today's psychedelic renaissance, quote unquote, and the 1960s, when a lot of the research got shut down, is that in the 1960s, there was no ubiquitous home mushroom cultivation knowledge. It did not exist yet. And there were very few people, average people in neighborhoods making LSD. It was typically coming from, you know, certain labs or whatever. The point being that mushrooms are far and away much easier to grow for a lot of average people than making LSD or something like that is. So I think that's one key consideration as far as like shutting the research down. It's going to be impossible to put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, when you have 
so many of these community-based organizations and regular everyday people all over the planet who are now producing enough psilocybin mushrooms to supply the rest of the world ad infinitum. So it's like, how do you contend with that? A. And then the other one I want to mention is about your use of the language deprioritize. You've said several times, you say decriminalize or deprioritize. This idea of deprioritizing, I would love it if you could unpack a little bit for the audience who surely some of them are involved in producing mushroom chocolates and various branded products in the legacy market, so on and so forth. And what are some key considerations about decrim, some, some, some of the limitations of the current models, and why do you say deprioritize in place of decrim? I think of decriminalization as a broad category and deprioritization as a subset of decriminalization. I think the best way to think about it is um, as, as on a spectrum. So generally speaking, I would define decriminalization as reducing or eliminating criminal penalties for psychedelic related activities or not enforcing them. And so there are a couple different variables uh, along which decriminalization efforts could, 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 could vary. So one of them is the substances that you include. You know, Denver in 2019, they only included psilocybin mushrooms. You could have a single substance. Most of the cities that have decriminalized since Denver have included a variety, maybe, maybe five, you know, they're the, the five most common substances in these, in these local decrim resolutions. And I'll, I'll talk about what a resolution is in a second, but so you, you have things like, um, um, Ibogaine, mescaline, not from peyote origin, uh, dimethyltryptamine, psilocybin, and psilocin are usually the ones that, that seem to be included. So you can vary your legislation in terms of the substances you include. You can also vary your legislation in terms of the activities, the psychedelic-related activities that are uh, you're, you're no longer going to enforce criminal penalties for, or, or you're going to eliminate them. So these could be things like possession and consumption. So something very narrow and simple. And the Denver decrim in 2019 was, was pretty narrow like that. Or you can start adding all kinds of things. You can have sharing, gifting without compensation. You could even decriminalize sharing with compensation. So some people might call that sales. That's, that's a line that has not yet been crossed in the United States. Um, another, another difference is the extent to which you decriminalize those activities. So the, on one extreme would be just completely eliminating criminal penalties. A state can do that. That's what a, a state can just take the criminal penalties off the books. Uh, they cannot change the federal status of psychedelics. They'll still remain illegal and in Schedule One at the federal level, but a state can eliminate criminal penalties at the state level. A city can't do that, but it can say we're not going to spend any of our resources on enforcing those criminal penalties. So that's what deprioritization is. It's when a city says, a city council or whatever the legislative body is for a city or county, they say, we're not going to spend any resources or, um, you know, people power on enforcing or prosecuting people for 
what for these this list of activities that they choose to include. If you look at the 20 or so cities that have decriminalized in the US so far, Denver is the only one that passed an ordinance. So it has legally binding force. It actually has the force of law, whereas the other cities have passed what are called resolutions, which is just a statement of the lawmaker's policy position. So it's it's not legally binding. It's easier to overturn or ignore than an ordinance. But I think it still has a lot of value, not just symbolic value, because people feel a lot more comfortable discussing these things, I think, as a result. But it probably also does impact law enforcement and prosecutors to some extent. It's impossible to say how much, but um, that's kind of the, the spectrum of decriminalization that we're seeing uh, across the country right now. You know, it reminds me of a Bill Murray quote, I believe it was, where he says that I find it ironic that the most dangerous thing about cannabis is being caught with it. And I think that there's some parallels there to thinking about mushrooms. And uh, I also often preface a lot of what I say on the podcast with the fact that I do think that they can be potentially dangerous if used in the wrong scenarios. I think there's plenty of evidence of that, including stories that I've shared on the podcast from things I've directly witnessed. And and the real key there, I suppose, should be about the education before the regulation, the sense of the fact that we still have a wholly inadequate drug education program or lack of education at all in the United States, that the D.A.R.E. program, which has been deemed an abject failure, including by the people who launched it and have funded it, is still active in 70 percent of public U.S. school districts. And there's no alternative. So that's something that I hope to see thinking about public health that we just double down on a more grounded, in-touch, data-driven, data-driven, trauma-informed drug education system. And so again, I, I get kind of distraught with some of the more corporate interests that are trying to shape psychedelic policy and the psychedelic landscape who are more focused on trying to deliver their you know, drug development pipeline candidates or whatever and patent them than uh, on teaching literally tens of millions of people how to use the substances that are already ubiquitous in their communities. And I think uh, there's a lot to unpack there as well. But I'd love to go back to this concept of public health as it relates to psychedelics. And for so long, mushrooms were not really in the purview of the broad populace. They were always a very niche, underground, sort of sub-demographic of society that was interested in mushrooms. And then ironically, when the shroom boom hit, as it's been titled by a lot of the media, and around 2018, a huge amount of publicity started to undergird the discussion about mushrooms. And all of a sudden, it was Oprah Winfrey talking about them, and it was ESPN and these mainstream pop culture institutions, and then also academia, the Johns Hopkins studies. I believe you could call it the Michael Pollan effect, right? After that book came out, after Fantastic Fungi came out, there was this insane growth and trajectory all of a sudden where everybody was hyped on mushrooms and there were headlines coming out literally saying 10 years of therapy in one night and just kind of these incredulous claims. And then there was nobody who could legally fulfill that demand, who could supply it. There was a huge demand, huge interest, and yet it was so difficult for anyone to legally get it. So the irony there to me is that a lot of the actors and figures trying to trumpet the FDA approval process and legal psilocybin ended up creating this massive demand 
that no one's been able to supply yet. And that's where the legacy market has really blossomed and ballooned and mushroomed. And when you have people like Tracy T from Moms on Mushrooms, who's a friend of mine, going on Dr. Phil and going on Good Morning America and talking about how much mushrooms have helped her as a mother and microdosing and psilocybin, all of the people watching that programming, they're not going to go to Oregon necessarily and pay $3,500. They're coming to the legacy market. And it's been amazing to witness that dramatic growth to the point where, you know, I'm pretty low key, believe it or not, about, you know, sharing with people I know all the time about micropreneur and what it is. I kind of let people investigate it if they want. But when they do ask and I'll say, yeah, I have this podcast and this and that, then people I never would have expected go, oh, yeah, my neighbor grows mushrooms or, you know, I've started microdosing and it's a phenomenon. And I think that's where we're at right now is a lot of the regulatory frameworks, a lot of the alphabet agencies, if you will, are sort of playing catch up with this momentous, massive demand. And the next couple of years I see is like how to contend with that or corral it. And I don't think anyone has an answer, which is why the, the satire comes in handy. Again, it's kind of fun to to just have a good laugh about it and say, hey, if it helps you and, and you know, it's beneficial for you, great. There's no shortage of mushrooms on the planet. That's for sure. They're growing in the middle of the, you know, subtropical African continent right now. And they're growing in Tonga and they're growing in Mongolia. They're literally growing everywhere. So how do you contend with that? So just a couple of thoughts I wanted to offer there. Yeah, no, these you, you raised some really good points. And I'm glad you mentioned the risks because I wouldn't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying, you know, to, to believe that I am minimizing risks. I think there are real risks to to all psychedelics. Um, but the question when you're, when you're, when you're thinking about things in terms of public health, you have to look at the reality and you're not comparing, you know, the entire nation being abstinent from, um, mushroom consumption to the, uh, uh, decriminal, decriminalizing them. You're looking at what happens in the rea the reality of the situation where you have millions of people who are already using them are going to and gonna, are going to continue using them regardless of whether or not they are, are legalized or decriminalized and the benefits that you gain from decriminalizing them you know it's not obviously it's not it's not it's unrealistic to think that by and the dare program is an example of that and i was brainwashed by that too and 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 you know truly believed at a young age that people were bad, you know, because that's what they drill into your head, that drug uses and drug users are bad. Um, and I remember learning um, probably when I was in law school that the laws just didn't really align with the science on these substances. And it was, it was kind of infuriating as though I had been um, misled by, by these programs. But um, the public health perspective accepts that people are going to use these substances is already happening. And so how then can we make improve safety given that we know that it's a very pragmatic approach. It's an approach that much of the time the Netherlands has taken, although um, some people have been very critical even locally in the Netherlands of their, of their policies towards cannabis. A lot of people don't realize that, they have shops in the Netherlands that sell not only psychedelic uh, or psilocybin containing truffles, the, you know, the d different life cycle of the fungus and the mushroom, but many other psychedelic plants can be purchased in these stores. And the Dutch Ministry of Health many years ago commissioned a study 
to look at the the public safety risk of at the time I think mushrooms were actually they could sell in these stores they've they've since been banned um, in favor of the truffles, which is somewhat arbitrary. But back then, I think people could still buy mushrooms. So public health experts, they did this study commissioned by the Ministry of Health, and they found that there was really minimal effect on public safety. And I've, you know, I think that's pretty striking. There's also been decriminalization in Denver for at least a few years now. And uh, if there were really terrible things happening on a regular basis. And there have been some bad outcomes that you hear about. And I, and I think it's uh, uh, terrible and I don't mean to minimize that, but if there was sort of a systemic problem of bad outcomes, you would certainly hear about it because many people would be interested in, in letting everyone know about it. But um, it's a little bit frustrating to see potential deceleration of decriminalization because there's there's some pushback in Oregon over measure 110 a lot of people are up in arms saying that decriminalizing drugs didn't solve the drug problem overnight and so they want to reverse it you know when they haven't really given it a chance uh, and, and seen what could happen and then people advocates fought very hard to include decriminalization of home cultivation in the ballot initiative in Massachusetts for next year and of course, we saw that California statewide bill vetoed after it passed the legislature. So I just wor I worry a bit about the future of decriminalization, and it's just really important to get out there and discuss the uh, its importance. Yeah, I think that one of the main focal points as a psychedelic movement, if you were to coalesce all of the different stakeholders into one movement, is to improve the communication systems to, to have better communication across divergent stakeholders and parties and to create better forums and platforms where people can publicly debate each other. And I've written about this for Lucid as well, as it's kind of disingenuous or disempowering to see thought leaders in their own respective fields quarreling on social media. And like we're seeing it today, you know, you see it literally all the time. And I think that there's a fundamental limitation in the way that a lot of public discourse has been routed that kind of negates any potentially more valuable outcomes, which I see sort of compromise or amelioration as the way forward, that you have people oftentimes who have conflicting interests. And then we don't right now have a great apparatus for engaging each other and then having an informed sort of uh, observation of that, like Socratic seminar would be a great model. I don't know how to replicate that. I've proposed it at conferences and I've had people, including lawyers, you probably know, who are interested in doing this kind of thing, but obviously it requires all of the different parties who are quarreling to participate in that. So that's just one observation that I want to hopefully contribute is to, to try to create better communication systems and that directly segues into the uh, the censorship that's happening right now, I think is a major issue for a lot of reasons beyond psychedelics, right? This idea of silencing opposition, of kind of rigging a lot of the uh, democratic processes in some way. So, you know, that's pretty ambiguous and open-ended, but I think a lot of people would agree that that's sort of happening. And in, especially with psychedelics, it's happening. And for example, as you're probably aware, like I recently lost my Instagram over basically nothing. It was like 
three years of great relationship building, content people appreciated, you know, a nuanced sort of audience that really appreciated it. And then boom, you're gone. And you're seeing that a lot, I think, on certain platforms. And uh, so that's a concern that I have moving forward. Uh, you know, I grew up hosting exchange students and I often share that on the podcast. And I have very close friends who grew up in the Soviet Union and said, I just saw my whole government and society just collapse, you know, or like a friend who grew up in, in uh, Venezuela. And then the whole family had to get out where they're just like, yeah, one day you have a bunch of money. And then the next day you can't make a withdrawal from the bank, you know, and uh, those are like extreme situations and scenarios, but also ones that I've been personally exposed to uh, that have happened in the last 20 years or so in 30 years. So I hope moving forward, just as uh, the United States, but also more globally, that we have better communication systems and uh, <laughs> hopefully we don't have a scenario three or four years from now where there's only one way to peel the banana. Like, yeah, psychedelics are legal, but only if you do it this one explicit way and it's lorded over by this state-funded agency, yada, yada. Like, to me, that's a scenario that I don't wish upon anyone. I think it should exist for sure. Um, and I think, again, to round out this rant, that if you are under the influence of a psychedelic, if you take mushrooms and you get naked and punch a cop in the face, which a friend of mine actually did before I knew him, you should be you are fully subject to prosecution for breaking those laws. So I think that's one of the misunderstandings. People say, for example, like with that pilot you mentioned earlier, who may or may not have been under the influence of psilocybin and tried to take a plane down. Mushrooms are already illegal and the dude tried to do it, you know? So like, how does that argument, uh, you know, transfer onto a legal regulated space? It's this, this same idea that, and alcohol is the easiest comparison for a lot of people to make. It's like, you can get as drunk as you want at sports events in most cases, and you can get overserved, and it's a tremendous public health issue, but yet we've somehow omitted alcohol from the uh, CSA, right? Or from the Controlled Substances Act, like tobacco and alcohol, two of the most prevalent public health issues somehow are magically not included on the Controlled Substances Act. So obviously, I think a lot of people and in my generation are quite disenchanted with uh, some of this regulatory framework rulemaking because we kind of see the, hypoc the hypocrisy that's been there and how to contend with that. I'm not a public official, so I don't have to do that. I'm thankful for that. But I think th these are considerations that when people are rolling out the frameworks, they need to be aware of like, uh, you guys, and I say this like broadly, a lot of these regulatory agencies and a lot of the current public health system have earned the mistrust of a lot of people who are interested in creating new systems and you know finding loopholes to get around the powers that be as they are right now. Well, you're not a public official yet. But <laughs> I, I, I love this idea of having spaces for open discussion and debate. And I agree that we don't we don't really see that in the psychedelic ecosystem. At a lot of events, it tends to be kind of cherry-picked discussions that you know aren't going to rock any boats. Jules Evans hosted a debate recently on the role of psychotherapy. Was psychotherapy essential? You know, do, do psychedelics always need to be provided alongside psychotherapy? It was a very civilized discussion. You know, it was a it was much tamer than any um, presidential um, election debate that you'll watch on the news these days. That's for sure. But I I would love to see that if 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 you you know, I think if if you we're a part of creating that. And, and if, and if there's any way to come together and create something like that, I think it would really be very beneficial. 
And I, I also like the idea of a roast. So I, I suggest you organizing a roast for charity and inviting some of the big companies to come and um, be roasted, which would be not only hilarious, but it could also raise a lot of money for, for a, a good cause, but it has to be a real charity and not one of these like phony psychedelic charities out there. <laughs> but, um, they're not all phony, but there are some out there. Um, and also just, you know, I don't, just like I don't have any problem with FDA research and think it's really important and crucial you know, I have no, no issue with people making money and forming corporations and becoming wealthy. I think that's fine. Um, I think the problem is when they then start actively trying to suppress, you know, the grassroots people that are trying to keep their community safe. That's when things are, are start to really concern me. I don't even oppose patents necessarily, although there are a lot of problems with our patent system that, and I've written about previously how the, the present patent system does not promote the goals that it was originally established to, to achieve, which was true benefit for society, you know, like truly new and useful innovation that benefits society. Uh, where it's problematic in psychedelics, which is, which, and we see similar issues in other um, areas, particularly in other drug and chemistry related fields, but, you know, it's, it's taking a molecule and changing one little thing in a way that's well known to everyone in that field and saying, look, I created something new and patenting that. Or of course, taking practices that have been utilized for a very long time by traditional healers and saying, I'm going to patent that method of delivering these substances. I mean, that, that is concerning. And there's a lot of rhetoric about honoring indigenous, indigenous communities and, and, you know, but typically their involvement is very uh, superficial. And, um, you know, that's another kind of criticism of this, of this space. But just to come full circle on that thought, yeah, how can we create these spaces for open discussion and debate? Uh, Jules actually invited me to debate. He said, would you be willing to debate someone on the, on the data collection issue. And I said, of course, let's do it. But of course they, they weren't unwilling to participate in that kind of discussion. So how can we, how can we create that? Well, you got me thinking about a new project on the horizon for 2024, because there's been considerable interest in the roasts specifically. And I've proposed that idea of the debate with a few often quarreling individuals and companies. And I just think that's a bad look for the whole space and the whole legitimacy of what psychedelics should stand for, where ironically, for so many people, psychedelics are about coming together and, you know, uh, collaboration, but that we've seen anything but in the sort of e emergence of this space. We've seen actually a lot more siloing and a lot more uh, divergence than maybe is necessary. So I will definitely consider practical and pragmatic ways to roll that out and to execute on it. So those are important things I think to, to discuss. And I also often like to say that I'm so for sale. Like I've been so open about like willing to take on investment, willing to work with people. And uh, I think a, a fair amount of my rhetoric presents as sort of anti-capitalist, but in a sense, it gets back to that not wanting to put the cart before the horse, wanting to see actual innovation, actual benefit at large to as many people as possible. And that 
I think in some senses I'm qualified for this because it's been an object of fascination and study for 17 or 18 years of my life at this point. And uh, so this idea that like I just entered the conversation yesterday, that's just when I started speaking publicly about these experiences. But really, in a lot of private circles all over the planet and with a lot of very interesting characters, I have a lot of personal experience and my perspectives are informed by those. And now I get the, the freedom to share them in a sense. So that I'm very motivated to do that, obviously, and to not pull punches. But yes, I do hope that a lot of people do make money on this. And I do hope to be one of those people. So just want to get that out of the way right there. I think it's great. I, I, and let's be optimistic. Like I would love to see real, true advancement in our understanding of psychedelics, in our understanding of the brain and consciousness and how psychedelics affect the brain and, and how they can help treat mental health conditions. I mean, I'm all for that. I'd love to see that. And I, and I, and people deserve to be compensated for their, their effort and uh, time. But um, when they kind of game the system and take advantage of these, um, you know, kind of, uh, I don't want to say loopholes, but, you know, they are um, unethical practices and are de are deceptive or dishonest, um, you know, then they, then they, they shouldn't profit in the way they do. And, and there are some um, actors that, you know, are less than, than reputable on the, on the, on the, on the legal <laughs> regulated side. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I like the, I like taking a positive view on it. I mean, that's why, these things are so exciting, right? The, their potential to improve our knowledge and advance science and medicine. I mean, that's really exciting. But that, that can be our hope for 2024. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think it's going to be a really exciting next couple of years. Obviously, the challenges go hand in hand with the opportunities. So as a collective, speaking at a planetary level, there's a lot of very pressing challenges that are you know, causing immediate discomfort for a lot of people right now. But I also believe like these are the times when real innovation happens. Like there's that old trope about like if you're comfortable, like it breeds no innovation, right? It's like hard times make strong people essentially. And I think that's what we're going through right now. And I see a lot of people in the psychedelic space who have their companies, their brands, their platforms who are kind of uh, concerned about the financial viability of it. And they're like, man, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And my call to action is like bootstrap as long as possible. I think that's to getting back to like the discomfort or, or the turbulence that a lot of these companies are facing. It's when you had certain financial projections that you've publicly or, you know, built your business around that are not um, congruent with reality. I think if you can bootstrap, if you can be resourceful, you could be, you know, front and center for a long time. And that's one of my favorite things about psychedelics is that a lot of the experiences I've had personally have often emphasized the importance of community and resourcefulness. And when you start to eschew those things in favor of explosive personal financial returns, then, uh, you know, reality is under no obligation to conform to your personal expectations and projections. And the more people that get comfortable with that fact and get comfortable with bootstrapping are going to do really well. And to round that out, that's why a lot of mushroom companies are doing really well. Like people who have been in it as, uh, you know, North Spore, I just had them on. They're based in Maine. Like 
just a couple of people growing mushrooms. They got in it in 2014. And you know, the business is valued at millions of dollars right now. And I think there's a lot of examples of that. Josephine Nakakondi, who I often reference, she's based in Uganda and has taught 400 female entrepreneurs in an abjectly impoverished region of sub-Saharan Africa, how to grow oyster mushrooms and how to sell them. And these women went from making less than a dollar a day and many times being in situations of domestic violence where they were dependent on someone to being full-fledged female entrepreneurs making $15 a day and selling oyster mushrooms to hotels and Kampala in the capital of Uganda. Like Those are the stories that get me really excited, not the dude in LA who's, you know, trying to have another exit and that, you know, you on LinkedIn and they're like three exits and, and uh, good for them. I hope they have another exit, but like, let's focus on Josephine and people like that. If mushrooms can really help mitigate the mental health crisis, like what if the current structural inequities that are baked into our healthcare system are only going to exacerbate uh, more of these inequalities structurally in society. So maybe that's my far leftist talking point. So we'll finish moving you know, back towards the center. What's going on with this Petrie Flom Center psychedelic conference that's happening, which I submitted an abstract for, which was rejected and which I was a little bit sad about, but also I wrote the abstract in 15 minutes, full disclosure. So I'm gonna submit again next year. Uh, but what are you excited about this upcoming conference? Oh, thanks for raising that. There, so we have we have a, we have two conferences actually. The first is February sixteenth in Manhattan at the Fordham Law School campus in, near Lincoln Center, Upper West Side. Uh, February sixteenth. That is um, in in collaboration with the Fordham Law Review. It will be live broadcast for people who can't attend in person, and it's called Drug Law for the Twenty First Century. Kind of looking back on fifty years of public health policy that's largely been steered by the Drug Enforcement Administration. The DEA turned 50, so we're kind of celebrating the 50-year anniversary of the or birthday of the Drug Enforcement Administration in February um, and, and thinking about how we might, you know, things might take a better path moving forward. And then the, the, the Poplar Conference that you mentioned is in June, uh, June 25th. And that is going to be solely focused on psychedelics as opposed to broader drug policy. Uh, it's, it's the law and policy of psychedelic medicine. And um, that will be sort of the, we'll be closing out our third year of this, of this uh, project at Harvard. And so it's, it'll be a nice timing to kind of celebrate what we've achieved over the, over the past three years. And um I'm sorry your, your your contribution wasn't accepted. I'm a big fan of yours. I think you have a lot of important things to say, and I hope we can you know collaborate on things in the future because uh, I like uh, working with you. Likewise, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to join me on the Micopreneur podcast. I very much enjoyed this discourse, and I'm glad that it was more of a dialogue than a straight-up interview. So welcome back anytime, and I'll be following along with your newsletter that you put out. Yeah, thanks. It's Psychedelic Week at psychedelicweek.com. All right. Well, I read it every week. Thanks again. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks so much, Dennis. It was really a pleasure. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com. 
or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.